Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Tad Michaels. Masks are now mandatory in public places in Hamilton. What does that mean for you? Canada's federal government decided not to allow the Jays to play in Canada. An article in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette said the Jays may be looking to play at the PNC in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh Post-Gazette writer Jason Mackey joins us with the details. And today marks the 51st anniversary of the moon landing. James Donovan is an author who wrote about the landing and the first steps on the moon. And he joins us on the show. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The news came out and it starts today and earlier last week when it comes to wearing masks in the city of Hamilton, I think Councillor Brad Clark put it best. Please wear a mask. We don't want to see a situation where we have permanent unemployment come up because they had to shut down the economy again because of the second wave. Wearing the mask is going to help us keep the economy moving, help keep people bringing money into the households and keeping healthy. I think that's a great idea. And joining us to talk about today, uh, another uh, eventful day in uh, this ever-going pandemic story, is the Director of Emergency Center uh, for the City of Hamilton, Paul Johnson. Paul, thank you very much for joining us. First time I had a chance to talk to you. Thank you. Good morning, Paul. Are you there? Oh, here I am. There you go, Paul. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to uh, the Bill Kelly Show. My pleasure. You disappeared on me. I thought it was something I hadn't quite said yet. (laughs) By the way, by the way, I'm not trying to, you know, make him look out to be a hero, but I ran into Councillor Clark Saturday at the grocery store. He had his mask on. We were talking. It was a little difficult to understand because, you know, both of us are getting up there and we're kind of hard of hearing, but he had his mask on. I had my mask on, so all is good off the top, Paul. I just thought I'd say that to you. There we go. Yes, that's great. That's great. So let's talk about today. It is uh, the uh, day where uh, people in the city of Hamilton have to wear masks. Uh, It's mandatory in public indoor places in Hamilton. Now, right off the get-go, Paul, I'm going to say that there are going to be people out there that are going to, and I'm not talking about health issues here. I'm just talking about people who are, you know, maybe just are ornery and don't want to wear a mask and are basically telling everybody, almost waving uh, their fingers at the uh, city for this decision. I'm sure your staff is prepared for that. Well, we we (laughs) certainly... We certainly know that, that that's a potential. We really hope it doesn't happen. Uh, there are certainly people in Hamilton who uh, w- will not be able to wear masks, and, and that's why those exemptions are there in the bylaw. Uh, we did see on the weekend some people that are you know, saying this is they're just not going to comply, and, and that's disappointing. But I, I will say I, I expect that that is a small, small minority uh, of Hamiltonians. I think that people get that this is... Uh, a safety measure, and really it's in place for what could happen as early as today, which is the announcement that Hamilton will move into stage three of, of reopening. I don't know whether that's going to happen, but if you follow along, uh, last last week, the majority of, of public health areas and areas of the province opened up. Uh, that's the same way it happened into stage two, it could happen into stage three. And masks are a very important part of entering into stage three because more people will be out, more indoor facilities available, and less opportunity for people to keep their distance. So uh, I expect, as, as Hamiltonians have done through this, so that uh, the vast majority will understand what we're trying to accomplish and will comply. And, and then there are some who can't, and we respect that and built that into the bylaw. And for those who are, are choosing to, uh, you know, 
just not comply for other reasons. Uh, it's disappointing because this is a virus that can spread, even though we haven't, you don't have symptoms of it yet. And that's what we're seeing happen in other jurisdictions as all of these indoor spaces become more and more open to the public. Paul, it almost sounds like you're expecting an an announcement from the Premier today when he holds his daily news conference at about 1 o'clock that we will be moving into Stage 3. Is that your sense? Uh, It could happen as early as today. I mean, they make their announcements on Monday. It kicks in on a Friday. If you look at how it worked the last time, um, as I say, you know, vast majority went. Then there was a second tranche and then the third tranche. Uh, was typically the the tight GTA uh, communities. So it may or may not happen. I have no inside information, but I think when uh, we were thinking through this, it really became uh, a critical part of, of the overall public health measures we're putting in place, particularly when we started to get close to stage three. We'll be there in a couple of weeks, uh, barring anything happening. But as you see, our case counts uh, they continue to be uh, particularly low here. So uh, we're going to be in that position very soon to open into stage three. Lots of indoor facilities available. And, and this is why we want to add that layer of protection, which is not, uh, you know, taking away from the other things around physical distancing and hygiene, all that kind of stuff, not going out anywhere when you're sick. Those types of things remain. This is just that added layer of protection. And the emerging evidence is that uh, it has a benefit. Paul, I uh, like to crunch numbers when I'm on the air, and a recent Abacus poll showed 70% of Ontarians supported mandatory mask rules. Is it your sense that for the most part, Hamiltonians, uh, it's 70% and maybe could be more? I think, you know, even with the with the uh, voluntary or our, our recommendation around mask use, we, we've seen a fair degree of it. It needs to be higher, and there certainly are pockets where it's not happening enough. But I think that people uh, get these things by and large, and uh, they'll they'll respect it, and also respect that the businesses are trying to make sure that they can stay open. Uh, there's a lot that happens if you have a, a little bit of an outbreak that's associated with a with a business. It has an impact on the people that were there, and it has an impact on the business itself. So why wouldn't we want to protect our businesses? Uh, because that's what this is all about. Uh, my mask protects you, and your mask protects me. It's not about you protecting yourself. Uh, The cloth masks have a little bit of efficacy around that, but not a lot. Those are those medical masks that we use in long-term care facilities or hospitals. So this is really about the respect that you're providing to everybody else. And the evidence is quite clear that there is a large amount of the community spread of this virus that happens when you're in that pre-symptomatic phase. So those couple of days before you actually develop a cough or shortness of breath or a fever or the other symptoms of COVID, uh, you're contagious. And this is the kind of thing where you say, look, we, we may not know that we're shedding this virus. And that's why masks uh, become an important part of a series of things we do to protect each other. Paul, let's talk about uh, then what happens today. So people, for example, they go to the grocery store, they, uh, I don't know, they go to the pharmacy, they go wherever. So uh, they now have to wear a mask when they go into that particular establishment. And I feel, Paul, for, I feel badly for a lot of um, younger staff who are probably put in a position of being, if you will, security at the door when somebody walks in and having to tell this person, if you're not wearing a mask, then you can't come into the store. Um, I'm I'm hoping that it's not a tense situation, but I know that I, I, I've seen that in the past where, you know, teens and people in their 20s who are working part-time or as a summer job uh, are kind of on the front line dealing with people that can be a little belligerent 
belligerent at times. Yeah, and we we really hope that doesn't happen. Uh, let's be blunt. A number of places have had this in, in place for a while. They've been either mandating masks or, or strongly encouraging it and, and te- checking in with people. So now it steps up that it's it's actually a city of Hamilton bylaw, so they can they can use us as a bit of the crutch for doing it as well. And yeah, there'll be people there that have to ask people, uh, you know, if they have a mask and can wear a mask. And if the answer is uh, no, uh, no organization is expected to drill down to all those details. Uh, that's not the exercise here. That could create an incredibly tense and, quite frankly, an inappropriate situation. We're not here to judge whether somebody's health issue is what we believe is strong enough or not strong enough. So uh, hopefully uh, this is, is something where it's if you don't have a mask, people are asked, you know, do you have a mask and can you wear it? And if they don't, I know a lot of places are going to have masks available for folks. And, uh, you know, I just keep seeing more and more mask use in general. So I, I think it'll it'll go about as smoothly as it can. And, uh, you know, there will be, I'm sure, pockets here and there. But I think uh, overall, I, I, I'm confident we're going to see the, the type of response that we've been seeing throughout this pandemic, which is people by and large complying with things. And uh, that's what we've seen from those very early days where we had to close a lot of things and keep people out of a lot of areas. And it's what we're seeing, uh, I hope, uh, today and, and in the future days with this mask. Paul, we should also bring up the fact, and you kind of touched on it, that this is a city of Hamilton bylaw. So if somebody uh, gets uh, a little um, on the other side and says, well, you know what, it infringes on my charter of rights. Uh, actually, it doesn't, because I, I've, from what I understand, uh, this bylaw kind of supersedes the charter when it comes to public health and safety, correct? Well, I won't get on all the legal things. Yeah. I'm sure these things are going to be challenged, anyways. Yep. Yep. But uh, certainly, you know, we uh, we don't go into these things uh, uh, blindly. So we have uh, good advice that we receive along the way, and we feel that uh, given uh, what we can do under the municipal act as a as a city, that the advice that the medical officer of health and others provided to council in terms of creating this bylaw uh, was sound and was legal. And uh, you know, I may get challenged along the way, and that's fine. But uh, we're certainly not. Uh, uh, not concerned about that element of it. Uh, we do have those abilities, and, and you know, people can remember that we did in April uh, pass a bylaw here at the city of Hamilton around physical distancing for the same purpose. That it was a it was a tool that we could use for for folks or for businesses that just chose not to not to understand the importance of some of these public health measures. And this is in this very same vein. I don't expect that we're going to be handing out a lot of fines. To be honest, we don't have enough bylaw officers to do this, along with all the other bylaws that they enforce. And and uh, my hat is a tip to those folks who who have to do this work on a daily basis. But it is a helpful tool if there are egregious examples where businesses, for instance, just are choosing not to uh, worry about and encouraging people to come in without masks, just, you know, that kind of stuff. Don't expect it'll happen, but if it does, we have a tool to use uh, to force uh, some compliance around that. And same with individuals. If it's just really an egregious example, uh, it's going to cost you a couple hundred bucks. And, um, uh, you know, again, hope it doesn't come to that. Don't expect we're going to be handing out a lot of tickets. But uh, at some point, you have to move beyond. Uh, let's do this as a, a collective effort. And let's. Uh, and now we're starting to say, no, we're going to do this uh, by mandate. Paul, just before we wrap up, uh, uh, and if you take uh, what you had said uh, on, and I shouldn't assume, but on the assumption that at some point the premier in the next week or so will hopefully be saying we're all into stage three now. 
how does that change? Because I'm sure that there will be a little bit of confusion from people thinking we're in stage three. I don't have to wear a mask. Uh, very quickly, what have you and your team uh, kind of determined based on all the advice from public health as to what is uh, mandatory when it comes to wearing masks when we move into stage three? Well, you know, to what you're hearing from folks, it's actually the opposite of that. This this masking piece really comes into play when you move into something like a stage three, because stage three is about reopening many more indoor facilities, indoor uh, restaurant usage, uh, uh, some bars, uh, looking at, at gyms and things like that, of course, office buildings, all those things where people can gather together. And uh, on top of the things that won't change, a lot of questions I get sometimes too are when we move into stage three does physical distancing disappear and the answer is no physical distancing is with us for a while because that is one of the most effective if not the most effective tools in terms of stop stopping the spread of this of this virus because it is droplet spread uh, so the physical distancing the hand hygiene the sanitation stations will be with us for a long period of time and then the masking adds an additional layer of trying to ensure that we don't go through another peak, which would have us go backwards in terms of the reopening of the community. And that's what we're trying to do. The bottom line is we have less than 900 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in, in this community through this period of the pandemic. There's 540,000 people to call Hamilton home. So we have an awful lot of people that are still susceptible to this virus. We don't want to see the same, the spikes that, uh, that they're seeing in some other jurisdictions. Uh, we want to do everything we can to protect. And one of the ways that we can keep on this movement to reopening, getting back to the things that we've wanted to been wanting to do for a while is to make sure we have all the protections in place. Uh, we think this is one additional tool in, the, in that toolkit uh, for, for Hamiltonians. Paul Johnson is the Director of Emergency Center for the City of Hamilton. Thanks for the update as uh, mandatory masks uh, come into play today. And I know it'll be an interesting couple of days as the education process continues. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Canadian government Saturday determined that cross-border travel required for Major League Baseball regular season play would not adequately protect Canadians' health and safety. Just after that announcement, because it means that they can't play at the Rogers Center, Jays president Mark Shapiro weighed in. Without any hesitation that I tell you we respect the decision. Uh, It's not hard to reflect uh, and think about how well managed, how well led uh, the virus has been throughout Toronto and Canada by the public health leaders and by political leaders. Um, And so so respectful of how they've managed that process uh, that we certainly understand and appreciate the decision that was made today. Well, uh, the Jays are now exploring the possibility. We've heard about Dunedin, Florida. I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't think it'll happen. Uh, They uh, also talked about playing uh, at Buffalo in uh, their stadium there. But there is another component coming up and joining us to talk about uh, the chances the Jays playing at PNC Park in Pittsburgh is uh, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette's baseball writer Jason Mackey joins us. Jason, first of all, thank you for joining us and uh, happy Monday, I guess. It's uh, it's a busy time for you. It is, yep. Uh, but thank you for having me. Happy to do it. 
And uh, it's kind of a, a, a busy time, but a fun time right now. So let's, first of all, before we talk about going to Pittsburgh, let's, uh, the baseball season's supposed to start this weekend, as we know. And there's still some, you know, we've heard some of the players, David Price, for example, saying he's not going to play this year because he is very concerned about COVID-19. At this late stage, is everybody still confident with your sources, Jason, that there will be the start to the baseball season this weekend? Well, I mean, I can only speak from a Pirates perspective, but everybody I've talked to, you know, in this part of the world um, is confident that things are going to go off without a hitch. Well, I shouldn't say without a hitch, but I mean that they're going to be able to handle it. Um, You know, the Pirates have had a few uh, positive tests down here. They've had, I believe, four uh, plus another that was suspected in in closer Keona Kella. You know, I think they're chalking it up to kind of the cost of doing business right now, Um, but there does not seem to be any gigantic hesitation on whether this thing is going to happen or not. I mean, they, they think it's going to happen. They're doing the best they can to function within it. Um, and I just, you know, it, it is what it is at this point. I don't, I don't know if there's any way to do it differently, um, given how, you know, we as a country have handled it, which has obviously been not great. Uh, talk about what the, the Pirates were doing, and we want to. I, I don't want to use the term spring training again because we had it back in February and March. But this uh, preseason training camp, what were the Pirates doing, and and how how odd was it watching them go through their paces? For example, wearing masks and nobody in the stands and all that stuff. Yeah, it's been an odd experience around the ballpark, and you know, obviously, it's been every day of the season at PNC Park, and there haven't been any quite like. There have been since, I think it was July 3rd, we started with summer camp, uh, what we've been calling it here. And, you know, you get used to seeing baseball practices. You get used to seeing guys take infield and batting practice and throw off mounds and this, that, and the other. But um, it's just there's a a sort of steady diet of awkwardness where, um, you know, you have the masks. It's tough to tell who is who. There's nobody around anywhere. There's these tents around the uh, backstop where they're trying to increase social distancing. Um, on the main concourse level at PNC Park, we're looking at, you know, exercise bikes and, and tables and uh, ellipticals and like the, uh, these other machines for players to work out because they're trying to utilize every part of the ballpark. So, I mean, it has certainly been strange, um, you know, even in the press box where we're all sitting super far away from one another and you're getting meals, you know, handed to you in a, a to-go container. And, and I can't even imagine what it's like in the clubhouse right now, but it's kind of the new normal. You know, it's interesting too, Jason, you bring up a very good point that normally when you cover a team, uh, a lot of conversations and you pick up a lot of things standing around the batting cage during pregame uh, batting practice can't do that now can you and that I know that that is very very odd for everybody all the beat writers not only in Pittsburgh but all the way across the uh, the the majors not being able to do that yeah and and you know frankly I don't like it but it also doesn't matter if I don't like it and I'm not going to sit here and complain about oh my goodness I don't get to be on the third baseline during batting practice in the middle of a global pandemic like I'd rather we prioritize safety believe me but um, it has made covering sports a lot different. You know, we're hopping on Zoom calls, and you know, I'm I'm thankful that the Post Gazette is willing to have me travel, and I'm going to get on the road and all that stuff, and that's fun. But it, it, you still get the same access as somebody would at home, other than actually being in the ballpark and getting to see things. So, it has changed the way we do our jobs. Absolutely, it's just 
you know, I, I don't know anybody that can sort of take any of those complaints seriously right now when, you know, we just want to be safe, make sure nobody gets it or as few people as possible get it. You know, kudos to, to your uh, company for sending you on the road because I know that was a conversation, uh, The never mind the expense, just the safety factor in sending people because of what I have heard, Jason, is that, for example, some broadcasters may not be going on the road, that they'll be calling the games off monitors uh, at, for example, the home stadium when, the in your case, the Pirates are on the road. Yeah. I'm not sure of what they're doing on the radio end for the Pirates. I think you can bring radio broadcasters, uh, but the TV side of things, they'll be doing it from the TV studio, which here is actually across the street from PNC Park. So I think teams, you might see them differ on that. You don't have to bring, bring like two broadcasters, but you can. Um, you know, I, I go back and forth. I, I, I don't think it's, I don't know if it, I want to say it, I don't think it's the smartest thing, but there's certainly an element of risk that you're taking on um, at the same time, like to do this job, right. I, I think you need to be there. Um, and so I'm, I'm thankful and I'm personally comfortable with, you know, the precautions I'm going to have to take and how it's going to affect our family and stuff. But I also understand that's, that's personal and other people might not feel that way. Our guest on the Bill Kelly show, Ted Michaels in for Bill is uh, the baseball writer for the Pittsburgh post Gazette to Jason Mackey talking about possibly the Jays playing in Pittsburgh. When, when you, you know, there was a lot of talk about the Jays playing at Salem field in Buffalo. Now that may not happen for a myriad of reasons. One of which of course is the uh, power of the lights uh, at that particular stadium at PNC park. It's a major league park. Uh, that doesn't appear to be the case. And from what I understand, reading your piece, Jason, is that there aren't a lot of conflicts between the Jays and the Pirates if the Jays play in Pittsburgh. Yes, I believe of the Jays' 30 home games, only seven conflict with the Pirates game. Um, I would say that's pretty darn good. And then, you know, I, I would look at those seven games, and if that's an issue, maybe you move one or two. I don't know. And, and even if you, like, stagger times or maybe somebody has an off day, maybe you can adjust things. I obviously wouldn't look at the Pirates to have to adjust because it would be on the Jays coming in here, I would think. But, you know, you can work together and figure it out, I would imagine. Um, and at the same time, if the Jays are going to have their sort of uh, satellite facility, whatever you want to call it, in Buffalo, that makes sense. And I mean, it's about a three-hour, three-and-a-half-hour drive from Buffalo to get down here, so that would make sense, too. The question I would have, and I, this is the one that the Pirates are asking right now, is can we do this safely? Can we do this smartly? Can we sanitize everything and, and keep the Jays safe, keep everybody the Jays play safe, keep the Pirates safe. And, you know, I, I don't think you want to do this just because, like, it sounds cool and we're trying to be nice. Like, you can't put risk on that many people. And I, I don't know the answer to that question, whether they safely can or can't. But, uh, you know, I would hope that they don't do it unless they think that they can absolutely pull it off. Jason, one of the things that uh, was talked about, and we, one of the many terms that we will uh, come to probably get real sick of talking about is the term quote-unquote bubble. Uh, when the Jays were talking about playing at Rogers Center in Toronto, they talked about the bubble and the stadium and the hotel is attached right next to it so the Jays would play and practice and just kind of walk down the tunnel and go to the bubble and basically stay in the hotel. Uh, fill us in for those of us that haven't been to PNC Park. If this is the case for the Jays, you play at the stadium. What uh, How 
close are they to a particular hotel where they can make sure that the bubble is not pierced? Honestly, the Jays would love it. Um, not only is it a great ballpark to play in, it's super convenient. Um, you know, it's it's down on an area of our city called the North Shore. Um, it's right where three rivers that you've probably seen, they all meet. So this is along the banks of the Allegheny River. Yep. Uh, but as close to a hotel as you could possibly get. I know when I look out from the press box, there is one literally across the street. There's another one at another corner of the ballpark. There's a couple really nice ones right over the Rubera Clemente Bridge, which is the big yellow bridge you see in the outfield. So, I mean, logistically, it is very, very easy to keep guys right there, keep them safe. Um, as far as, like, the inside parts of the ballpark and the operations areas, all of it is top-notch. They take great care of it. Um, I can't speak highly enough for the people who run the, you know, ballpark operations. Obviously, the Pirates get a lot of heat for not spending enough money on players, and I'm not going down that road. No. Simply, like, how they take care of their facilities. It's a very good um, I have no doubt in my mind that if the Jays did this, they'd be very happy with their accommodation. I uh, have seen, of course, games down at PNC Park and seen highlights. Uh, uh, boy, you uh, talk about picturesque. It just looks like sitting in the stands and in the press box looking out over the rivers. Uh, boy, that's a beautiful area, isn't it? It is. It is. And, and I mean, they did an absolutely tremendous job. It's funny. I, we just finished as a paper doing a series of stories on PNC Park's predecessor, Three River Stadium, and um, it was 50 years ago last week that it was built. Um, obviously, it was you know imploded, and it's no more. But um, when they built PNC, man, they just absolutely did everything right. It, it has aged well, um, and you're just not going to hear a bad word from anybody about it. And the city of Pittsburgh, honestly, the, some of the feedback that I got on that story last night, People are psyched. They, they would love to have the Jays here. I mean, the Pirates have been such a source of frustration. Like, if the Jays were here, <laughs> and for some reason people could, like, actually make them a part of, like, their daily life, I think they would. I mean, this is a great baseball city that is incredibly frustrated by how much the Pirates have struggled of late. And I think the Pirates have put themselves in a good place with who they hired. Don't get me wrong, but it's just... You know, they are yearning for good baseball. You know, it's interesting. I'm just getting flashes because I know we've seen the stories of, uh, you know, well, all the Steelers fans in and around Heinz Field and the Pittsburgh Penguins fans. Having downtown Pittsburgh or the area around the stadium uh, with a whole lot of people wearing Blue Jays caps, I think that would have some people in Pittsburgh having, rubbing their eyes, not quite understanding uh, what the heck's going on down here. <laughs> well, yeah. I guess, but I mean, I don't think they're going to get mad at it. Yep. I don't see how you could get upset. I've got a lot of friends that have traveled up to Toronto and, um, you know, have, have gone to games there and have loved it. I mean, I used to cover the Penguins and have been to Toronto a ton of times and absolutely love it. I stayed at the hotel at Rogers Center. I mean, it's just such a great place. I have nothing but just the utmost love and respect for everything you guys do up there. It's, it's incredible. Like, to me, if we can, if we can pull this off, I mean, I, selfishly, like, I hope it happens. I think it would be tremendous. Um, and I think a lot of Pittsburghers would probably feel the same way. Just before we wrap up, let's talk about, uh, you also mentioned in your column that there is a tie-in between Toronto and uh, Pittsburgh, and you're talking about, um, you know, the Pirates' general manager and uh, the manager of uh, the Pirates. There there are some Toronto tie-ins, and if you connect the dots, then it looks real good, and you keep saying, I know that this hasn't been put together yet, but but there are some close relationships, are there not? There are, and Ben Charrington uh, spent, I believe it was three years with the Blue Jays. 
in player development, and that was kind of his like back on his feet job after the Boston Red Sox. Um, Derek Shelton was there for a year as a quality control coach. That's that was sort of a big year between those two and developing their relationship. Steve Sanders is a Blue Jays guy. He's now the Pirates assistant GM. So the lines are certainly warm there. And with Mark Shapiro, um, I know from you know talking to him and other guys at our paper have talked to him. He has the utmost respect for Ben Charrington. Those two remain close. Um, so. You know, I have no doubt there are some conversations going on. And, you know, I, frankly, like, I, I think the Pirates would love to do this. It's just a matter of can they do it safely. Um, and that's that's going to be a question I don't feel like, you know, maybe the Pirates necessarily can answer or I can't answer. It's just health and medical experts, can we pull this off? And I think if they get the answer, like, yes, this is not going to be any sort of strain. Logistically, we can do this. I you know, I probably see it happening. I think it makes a lot of sense. And uh, the season to be specific starts when I I know that there's uh, uh, they've been promoting it uh, on Fox Television. They got a triple header coming up on the weekend, so uh, the season starts this weekend, correct? Correct. Yeah, the opening night is Thursday, but yep. everybody starts in earnest on on Friday, and the Pirates will go down to St. Louis. Um, and and there, are, I believe, there are two games on Thursday: Yankees and. Nationals, I don't, I don't know the national yep. schedule, but you know, locally we're going to St. Louis. And uh, again, it's going to be very odd, isn't it, going down to that to ballpark? And uh, boy, they, the Cardinals fans in St. Louis love their team. It's going to be odd watching a game with nobody in the stands because you will, you'll be able to hear literally everything, right? Yeah, and one of the things they've been doing, it's been kind of interesting. They've piped in crowd noise from MLB The Show, the video game. Um, and they're, you know, sort of playing with it, playing with the volume. Um, some guys like it, some guys hate it. They're trying to have like reactionary crowd noises, like, you know, Pirates player gets a hit. They're trying to figure out the right level to play to make it seem like the crowd's there. So they've been doing things so it's not dead silent, but they haven't mastered it yet. And I don't know if it's going to stick for the regular season. It, it has been strange though. Absolutely. With, you know, being there, like I said, in summer camp, um, I'm heading to Cleveland tonight for an exhibition game, and um, they had one Saturday. It's just it, it doesn't have the feel of a normal regular season game. I'm curious what it's like on television, but in the ballpark, it's still a little bit odd. I'm wondering uh, when the uh, which will happen in baseball when a manager gently questions an umpire about a call that he thinks the umpire did not make correctly, and we'll leave it that way. I wonder how loud it'll be on the television, and they're going to have to use the delay, because uh, I'm thinking at an empty ballpark, you'll be able to hear a lot more than you normally would. Yeah, maybe cue up the uh, <laughs> cue up the crowd noise a little <laughs> bit more, or have a slow, uh, have some sort of song playing in the background that they can hear each other yell, but you just can't hear it enough on television. Uh, they'll They'll figure it out. Yeah, you're not going to be able to have those conversations be audible because I don't think those guys are going to censor themselves for the sake of television. Uh, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette baseball writer Jason Mackey. Jason, thank you for joining us. Stay safe through your travels this year, and we'll watch and see uh, how this uh, Pittsburgh uh, story unfolds. Literally, it'll be in the next couple of days they've got to make their decision. Thank you very much for joining us. Much appreciated. All right, thank you. Have a good one. All right, so there you have the story, the update on will the Blue Jays play in Pittsburgh. They don't have much time to make a decision. As he said, the season starts uh, in earnest basically this weekend, so if you don't count the first two games this weekend, you're talking five days. 
can they make the decision in time? And in Buffalo, they have to uh, not necessarily reconfigure. It's a beautiful ballpark, but the lights are AAA standard, not Major League standard. And when you come in for television broadcasts and lights and all that stuff, then uh, you have to kind of rejig. So we'll keep an eye on that one because that story will going to unfold very, very soon. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We go back 51 years ago to something that, if you were alive then, I'm sure you watched. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Well, I can tell you that I was uh, growing up a space buff, watched all the launches, all the moonwalks 51 years ago tonight. Uh, Neil Armstrong took those first steps on the moon, and uh, a man wrote a book about this particular uh journey, not only to the moon, but a look at what happened, uh, basically the entire space program with Mercury and with Gemini, and and it's just a fascinating read, and so uh, happy to be talking with the author of Shoot for the Moon, Mr. James Donovan, joins us on this anniversary. Mr. Donovan, James, thank you very much for joining us. Hey, Ted, how you doing? My pleasure. Uh, I'm doing very well. Congratulations on the book. I cannot imagine how much research went into this thing. I was absolutely, uh, once I got it as a Father's Day gift, I couldn't put it down. <laughs> well, thanks. Uh, you're right about the research. I think I took, it felt like I took several college courses in uh, aerodynamics, astrodynamics, orbital mechanics, etc. You know, uh, we talk about this book, and, uh, you know, you... Uh, as we say, you go through the, the the whole early process, and there were things that I didn't know, for example, about the history of Werner von Braun, who was one of the first pioneers when it comes to, to the space program. You, you delve into his history a lot, and then I was fascinated when you started to delve into the lives of the original Mercury astronauts and their lives, because, you know, you talk about some of the things that maybe people didn't know, that everybody has their own foibles, we're all human, uh, those astronauts uh, the public persona at sometimes didn't match the private one. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. You know, that's one of the reasons I wanted to write this book, because so many books on this subject are science-related, just chock-full of technology and acronyms. You know, nobody was uh, better uh, at acronyms and abbreviations than NASA. And I wanted to kind of dumb those things down and bring the human side out and focus on people, because people like to read about people. And those seven people, you know, sometimes if we look at them now, those seven original Mercury astronauts, and just think of them as, you know, interchangeable men. But they were all, you know, individuals, very interesting, lots of things in common, of course, but uh, individuals and, and interesting ones. You know, um, Gus Grissom, uh, rest in peace, he had to be the most unluckiest person. And we're not, not, not making light of what happened to him, obviously, but uh, the problems he had when he went up uh, on his flight, the second man in space, and then, of course, that tragedy with Apollo 1 uh, on on the launch pad. You look at uh, Gus Grissom's life, and, uh, boy, that's uh, twisted in an awful lot of tragedy. Exactly. Uh, you know, that Gemini, I mean, not the Gemini flight, but his Mercury flight, yep. um, of course, the, the hatch popped open, and it started flooding. He jumped out and barely lived. Actually, he was... Uh, his, his uh, suit, his space suit, was filling up with water. Um, and he was blamed for that, but he swore to everybody that he hadn't pushed the thing. And um, right now, you know, the jury's out on, on what happened. And, of course, he was blamed for that. And, 
And then he took it as a, you know, he wanted to validate himself on Apollo 1, and that was going well. The training, of course, we were in uh, Apollo fever, go fever, they called it, and uh, they were kind of ignoring the little warning signs of things that needed fixing. And, uh, of course, that was a horrible tragedy, January 1967, when uh, the three astronauts burned on the launch pad during a dry run. Let's uh, talk about uh, what we're talking about today, of course, the history, but it all started four days previous on July 16, 1969. And you, you point out in your book uh, when uh, the uh, Apollo spacecraft was launched that there were 14 danger points, of what they call go, no-go. And, and you look at the 14 now, it's probably a lot more than that, but, but they... They launched this thing, and they had a lot of uh, uh, trepidation because obviously they didn't know if this thing was going to be a success. Good point. Uh, probably at least half or more of the people involved um, in NASA, and I've, I've heard this from uh, flight controllers, flight directors, astronauts, thought that Apollo 11 was not going to be successful. Uh, of course, there was a chance uh, they would all die. There were lots of... Uh, dangerous things about this mission. It's more dangerous than people realize. Uh, a lot of people thought this was, they'd have to cancel abort, and uh, maybe Apollo 12 or 13 would be the first to land, because uh, there, there were a lot of unknowns involved in this. This was an alien, a strange spaceship no one had ever landed, only in, they only landed this on, in simulators, like video games, on an alien world nobody had ever been on, in one-sixth gravity, no atmosphere, a vacuum, you know, you throw out all the laws of aerodynamics. They had 12 minutes of fuel in the descent engine. And, of course, you read the book, as you know, about uh, 30,000 feet up, they're descending. All of a sudden, these alarms go off, yeah, 1201, the 12... that yep. they had never seen or heard. And, you know, it's interesting because when you talk about uh, the risks of this flight, one of the other fascinating uh, things that you uh, bring up is, according to the crew... They said it was 50-50, successful landing. Right. Yeah, that's, that's what they all agreed on before, before the mission. That was about, it was about 50-50. They all agreed. Uh, and, of course, you know, I mean, there was a chance they, they wouldn't make it back at all. I mean, that, uh, like I said, the, the landing was hairy, and if they had been stuck down there, if their ascent engine, the Apollo ascent engine, hadn't started, uh, fortunately it was very simple, and it had already always started in trials, but if it hadn't, started they'd be stuck on the ground mike collins orbiting above you know 50 60 miles above couldn't have come down and, and rescued them and they would have died they actually had a speech as you know the president had a speech um ready to say if uh if they had died you know, it's interesting, uh, our guest, by the way, is James Donovan, who wrote the fascinating book, and I highly recommend it, Shoot for the Moon. When you talk about uh, coming down and the 1201-1202 alarms going off, when Neil Armstrong landed, there was less than 30 seconds of fuel left. And I know that in your book you point out that Buzz Aldrin was really upset that he wasn't going to be the first man on the moon. But does it not speak to Neil Armstrong and his coolness, if you will, under fire, that he basically took control of the thing, ignored the computer, and landed on where he was going to, as opposed to where the computer was sending them, which is into a bunch of rocks? Right. That's one of the more interesting parts of this story, the Apollo guidance computer, which was essentially just about the first portable computer. This was a, a, a time when mainframe com computers, IBM 7094s, 
took an entire large room. This guidance computer was a rope core memory computer. It had 72 kilobytes of memory. That's less than, oh, let's say a toaster. One mega, megahertz of processing speed. But it was very reliable, and it had... It was able to land them, but the problem was it didn't know what it was landing them in. And it was about to land them in a place with large car-sized boulders. So that's when Armstrong took over and started cruising, looking for a better uh, place to land. And, of course, they only had 12 minutes of fuel, and they got down to about, oh, 40, 50 feet when somebody in mission control, Bob Carlton, a flight controller, with a stopwatch said, 30 seconds. And they had to find something very quickly, and he did with uh, somewhere south of 30 seconds of fuel left. Absolutely incredible. And the other part, which you hone in a lot, and there's pictures of uh, you know the, these people like Charlie Duke saying, we're about to turn blue, we're breathing again, thanks a lot, and, <laughs> and, and Gene Kranz. Those, those people became legends. And, uh, you know, it's funny, when, when I look at the pictures now, and boy, have times have changed, they're all sitting there smoking, drinking coffee, nobody's saying a word. Yeah, everybody smoked. Lots of uh, pipes, pipe smokers. <laughs> Smokers, uh, coffee, of course, constant coffee. Each each guy had a, a, one of these huge round glass uh, ashtrays, <laughs> and there was a blue haze, of course, uh, you know, near the top of the uh, room and the low light. <laughs> so you know, the other thing uh, which you mentioned, uh, James, is is we all watched as well, of course, in breathless anticipation when Neil Armstrong took took that fir- first step on the moon. And I remember, because I was watching it, I thought to myself, don't lock the hatch when you come down. And I know that Aldrin made sure that when he came down that he didn't do that. Right, right. And they had to back out of this teeny little hatch because, of course, space and weight was all important and um, very small space, and they had to get down on their hands and knees and back out of this small little hatch that they could barely fit in with their backpacks, of course, and then pop out onto what they called a porch, <laughs> which was, you know, a very small thing, then climb down the ladder. Uh, you know, the other part, too, um, and... We also watched when they left the lunar surface, and again, it was one of those things where nobody knew because this thing would never have been done before. And, you know, we're sitting there watching. This is on live TV. You're watching the countdown. You're holding your breath at 3, 2, 1 to see if this thing took off. And as you say, it took off with with no problems. But again, that was something that, you know, if, if if something major happened and they didn't take off, we would have witnessed it. Yeah, it was live, and fortunately, NASA uh, worked in what they called redundancy, backup you know, systems, just about everything. And uh, I don't think there's ever been something as uh, high-level, technologically speaking, that was as, as carefully uh, built. You know, there are 400,000 people um, all across the nation working on this, contractors, subcontractors, and they really, to a person men and women took it very seriously that uh, men's lives were riding on this and um, uh, it's it's just amazing how how low how small how minimal they got um, uh, the danger point you know and and the other uh, thing that we mentioned off the top and played the clip of course is a legendary clip of Neil Armstrong saying one small step for man initially that wasn't what he wanted to say he wanted to insert the letter ah in front of man yeah. did he not well if you think about it, it grammatically 
man in that case and mankind is the same thing. And right. of course, what, did he, what he wanted to say was, one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. Uh, in later years, some people have said, oh, it was lost in the transmission. He said he meant to say it. Um, it's hard to say. I don't think, I think he just forgot the uh. I've, I've listened to it hundreds of times, literally, and I just think he forgot the uh, a, and uh, of course a lot of history books um, added, you know, just just for uh, clarity. The other part of this, and you mentioned, was Michael Collins, uh, the man who was uh, in the... Um the other part of this, circling uh, the moon, every, uh, you know, doing the orbit, going on the backside of the moon and coming back, and, and he was there by himself, and and people need to know that uh, what he said, Michael Collins at the front of the book said, this is the best book on Apollo that I have ever read. How much uh, contact did you have with Michael Collins when you were writing this book? I interviewed him several times. A wonderful person, just the nicest guy you can imagine. Uh, and then I worked up the nerve after the book was done, before it was published, and I asked him if he would think about uh, reading the book and possibly saying something about it that we could use. He called me up, and we talked for almost an hour about a few things that he disagreed with. Um, all of them were, almost all of them were very minor. He yep. said, I don't remember saying that. Well, <laughs> you did. You just don't remember <laughs> things yep. like that. Um, and then he... About a week later, he sent me that uh, quote, and that floored me. If, if nobody else liked the book, and if the book was a failure, um, I don't care. One of the men who was on that mission said that, and that validated it for me. Was Neil Armstrong comfortable with the fame? No, I don't think he was. He was a team player uh, and a very good man, uh, you know, classic Midwestern values, um, very modest, and he never, never, never liked that, which is why he gained the reputation as a recluse. He wasn't a recluse. He actually did a commercial or two, um, TV commercials. And he, you know, he taught for a while at Purdue. Uh, but, but he wasn't comfortable with the fact that people thought of him and only him and not all the other people, the thousands of other people that worked at NASA that made it possible. And then, of course, the other part, uh, Buzz Aldrin, we all know that uh, he had some, um, some issues with uh, mental health problems when the flight was over. Uh, was that kind of his personality, or was this a lot that was built up that kind of manifested itself? Well, kind of a combination. His mother, uh, whose maiden name, by the way, was Moon, yeah. what a coincidence that was, as you know, she killed herself, committed suicide, uh, before his Gemini flight, Gemini 12, I think. Yep. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, that's got to have, have an effect on you. And, she, and, and the, the reason that Buzz gave once was that she wasn't going to be comfortable with and didn't think she could handle uh, the attention that she might get as uh, the mother of, of an astronaut. Um, he had uh, depression problems, and he was doing a lot of drinking, but of course back then, you know, the Mad Men days of the 60s, um, it was a lot more common. But um, about a year and a half, 20, 22 months after uh, the landing, he checked himself into a, a hospital and got better. And he's been, you know, a great spokesman for uh, NASA and space travel since then, and he still is at uh, age 90. 
Uh, people are wondering, James, uh, should the U.S. or uh, the conglomerate of nations maybe team up? Uh, should they go back to the moon, in your opinion? Uh, you know, there's things, it's been so long, it's been, you know, almost 50 years, it's been since 1972 or 3, since uh, the last Apollo mission was there. A lot of people think, you know, we've already been there, been there, done that, let's go somewhere else. But, you know, we don't even know how we're going to get to Mars. Uh, right now, you know, they're talking about early 30s, 2032 or something like that. But we don't even know how that's going to happen. Um, and I do think we need to make some baby steps again to the moon and uh, learn how to do it again. Yes. So before we uh, wrap up, you know, I'm thinking if we ever did get back to the moon, at least we know that the pictures, I'm actually fascinated to see how much more clear the pictures would be from the surface of the moon now, 51 or more years later. Uh what do you mean? I'm sorry. As as far as obviously with with, with satellite images, the first grainy shots of Neil Armstrong coming down uh, oh, yeah. the ladder. Well, those cameras, uh, um, you know, that were that one camera that was attached to the outside that was on a lanyard. He put a lanyard and it flopped down and was pointed toward him. Uh, yeah, they had lots of transmission problems with that and interference from other radar and and. Uh, 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 anyway, uh, yes, it, it would be a lot clearer. Actually, the uh, some of the images, some of the transmissions were clearer, but we didn't receive those on our TV. Uh, but, um, yeah, it should be crystal clear and in color. That's going to be interesting, isn't it? Yeah, and the last point, which you talk about as well, because I all vividly remember at the same time the Russians were feverishly trying to get into space, and their uh, spacecraft made an unceremonious end just around the time that they landed on the moon. Tell, tell that story in case people didn't know. Right, well, yeah, it was a part of the, you know, the larger space race, and it was for you know, prestige, who was the you know, better... Uh, power at uh, technology, and a lot of it was involved in um, the Cold War. But um, they had a program going on to reach the moon and, and land men on the moon. It, it didn't work. The N-1 blew up four times when they tried to launch it in test runs. Uh, but as a last gasp effort to, uh, you know, gain some kind of um, fame and um, prestige, they shot a a probe up there and it was probably going to try to land on the moon and scoop some dirt up and return to the earth and uh it was it it crashed uh, right about when uh when Apollo 11 landed just just crashed probably into a mountain there are some very high mountains on the moon which we don't really realize a fascinating look at a historic part of our uh of our journey through life. Uh, you know, so many years have gone by, but so glad that James Donovan, the author of Shoot for the Moon, uh, put it all down in great form in a, in a sensational book. I uh, can't thank you enough for uh, joining us. I'm going to enjoy remembering what happened 51 years ago today, and and hopefully uh, people won't forget that this was a time that uh, literally united the world. James Donovan, thank you very much for joining us. Much appreciated. Thanks, Ted. I enjoyed it, too. 
The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Tad Michaels. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an opportunity. Make sure that you rate it and review it.